Ore Tachi wa Stardust Brothers. Welcome to Cinema Oblivia, your podcast for discussions on weird, old, out-of-date, out-of-fast, and obscure or hard-to-find films. I'm your host, James Eldred, and who do I have joining me for today's episode? It's uh, Adam Torell uh, from uh, Third Window Films, a Japanese and Asian film distributor, and uh, also produce films. Yes, Adam, thank you very much for joining me today. You're the first person really involved with the movies that I like to be on this podcast, so I really appreciate it. Today, we're going to be talking about a movie that you kind of helped rediscover, if I'm not wrong, The Legend of the Stardust Brothers from 1985, a Japanese movie. Am I correct that you're kind of responsible for getting it into the world? Yes, and it's really been a massive passion project of mine for, for years, and a film that, you know, I've, I've barely pretty much been doing all of the work for free, because I think it's just a film that needs to get out in the world and i'm glad that it's starting starting to to be actually yeah me too because I, I watched it after you recommended it and it really is a it's a remarkable amazing incredibly bizarre film and i do want to talk about it quite a bit but first since you know you work with your what are you, what is your official title over at third window i'm the owner to be to be honest actually a lot of people because of the sort of the sort of size of the company think that there's offices and staff and all that but it's been 15 years of just me on my computer and no office and no <laughs> staff and even doing everything from subtitling to uh poster design to physical wow. and digital distribution and in between producing films and doing world sales of others so it's a uh, yeah i have spent we usually 24 hours a day working on on everything and then uh, i had a kid recently and now it's now 23 hours a day or something. <laughs> <laughs> well congratulations on the kid Thank you. Congratulations on the company. It's a really amazing company. You guys put out, you well, you put out a lot of uh, movies that I think people would not be able to find otherwise. Could could you briefly talk about how you got involved in doing this? Uh, initially, um, when I, I actually lived in, in America as a, a teenager, and I worked at a, an independent video shop uh, in Florida, a place called Video Renaissance, which uh, it was in Sarasota, Florida, so it wasn't really... <laughs> You know, you know Sarasota. I had my 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 dad had a house there. Yes, uh, most people's dads do. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's that kind of area. Yes, yeah, uh, it's a place. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yes, I mean, it's, there's not much to the town, but for some reason, in this town, first of all, we had an amazing uh, independent cinema that I worked at for a while, and then a video rental shop, as I said, called Video Renaissance, that had about over forty thousand titles. Um, oh, that sounds amazing. Amazing. I mean, it's better than like you know Scarecrow Video and all these places that are known worldwide but because it was in sarasota florida like nobody ever went there it was just yeah. uh, but it was such a fantastic place if you were to see any film i mean the owners the owner had basically just bought every single film ever released ever and just huh. never thrown it away so you know vhs copies of films that were never ever made it to any other formats and like the only way you could see most films were, was at that uh, video shop uh, unfortunately nobody really saw any of them but i would watch them <laughs> day and night and 
that got me into the whole concept of, of distribution, which is, you know, we can't see films. I mean, maybe it's a bit different now in this, uh, with, with, with uh, digital distribution and piracy and all that. But, you know, at the time, the only way you could see a film in a country is if somebody in that country distributed that film. Yeah, I, I was got, I was into all sorts of cinema, but I was very much into Asian cinema and wondering why couldn't I see all these films that I read about or or or, or heard about, and uh, you know it was obviously because of distribution. So I moved back to England and started a, a, a distribution company of my own. Initially, though, I, I worked at a place called Tartan Films, which were known oh. as yeah, I'm sure you remember them. They had what uh, office in the states as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were known for like bringing Asia extreme cinema into the West, like uh, Battle Royale, Audition, uh, loads of great films. But, you know, Asia extreme is quite a, a narrow genre at, at the best of times. And yes. you know, while it had its heyday, it ended up being like 10 years of long haired ghost films that just were, were pretty awful, to be honest. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to sort of change the mind of people with distributing films that wouldn't be seen, but it were great films and opening up as best as I could the world to non-extreme or non-like Ozu Kurosawa type uh, Japanese and Asian films. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's how it started. Oh, cool. What was, so what was the first one you put out? To be honest, actually, I, you know, I thought I, it's probably not the best idea, especially at a time when the market was starting to get saturated with Asia extreme, mm-hmm. to not go too much the complete opposite way and put out like some tiny independent, you know, Japanese, uh, minor film and i thought maybe i should try to find films that that are a bit genre but also visually quite quite uh stunning and easy to watch and i started releasing korean films at the first uh like okay. lee, lee chang dong who did um burning the, the academy oh, Awards. yeah yeah so i picked up a few of his titles and as well as some other like very good quality genre, uh, genre mashups from korea but uh they all bombed to be honest <laughs> <laughs> what was the first one that really helped like get you going then like what was the first like big hit you had so with all these bombing and also they, they weren't obviously that cheap because korean cinema was in the ascendancy at the time and and uh you know they're also bigger budget films so i thought well you know i do love korean films but what i really love are these japanese sort of quirky comedies and uh and indie films that are a bit different so I, I picked up uh, a few films like um, Turtles Are Surprisingly Fast Swimmers from Miki Satoshi and okay. uh, Kamikaze Girls, which is uh, Shimotsu Monogatari, um, as well as uh, Memories of Matsuko, which is a fantastic sort of musical Disney, Disney style, like musical Gone with the Wind, really mix of genres, uh, fantastic film. And that, that and Kamikaze Girls were the films that really made the first successes for me. Okay, and I know, I, you know, as my listeners know, I live in Japan also, and I know that, and, and based with my limited experience in distribution, I know that working with Japanese companies can be difficult. Is it easier dealing with these smaller films? Of course. I mean, those, those films that I, I, I spoke about, especially uh, Kamikaze Girls and Memories of Matsuko, were not smaller films, to be honest, oh, okay. and they were quite expensive um, and, and very complicated to, to deal with, but... You know, nobody else, when it does come down to it, there is a sort of sense of competition and others weren't really into them. So I did pay over the odds for them, but it's, it got my foot in the door, per se, with a Japanese cinema. But yes, otherwise, dealing with independent films is, is a million times better. I mean, if it's any company at all, you can't, it's unbelievable how hard it is oh, to yeah. deal with them. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. And I noticed nowadays, 
you all you also have gotten a few older films now. I saw that you have a lot of uh, what like you have like Hanabi. Yes, uh, a lot of the Kitanos, but actually those Kitano films weren't bought from a Japanese company. They were all bought from a French company. Uh, in fact, most Japanese films, I think, if they want to get into Cannes, which people like uh, Kitano do, is oh yeah, it's very hard to get in to them from a Japanese company. I think if you look at all of the past 10 years or so of films that were made it into Cannes, including this year's Drive My Car, um, a lot of the Noemi Kawase films, the Koreeda films, they're handled, and, and the... Um, Fukada Koji's films like Harmonium, they're actually all handled by French companies. Okay. It gets you into Cannes. So, so I think the Japanese uh, want that, and therefore they, they, it doesn't become as complicated for us because we're dealing with, with people who understand Europe and, and understand the, the foreign market. Yeah, and I, I, I really appreciate your releases just because from the ones I have, like the, they're very good, like just the quality of the, of the product. So thank you for that. I was talking to you a bit on twitter about uh, another movie that i that we both love fish story and you released that on dvd probably in the uk right yeah initially in, in cinemas actually uh in cinemas it, too yes yeah it was it was at a time when it wasn't really easy to get a theatrical release it played in in a few cinemas and yes, yes on dvd you know when it came out in 2010 uh, yes but the american dvd was in non-anamorphic widescreen with burnt on subtitles <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> and different company. So when when I saw that your company was again putting it out on Blu-ray, like I jumped at it because that is the reason why I bought I bought an all-region Blu-ray player to get your copy of Fish Story. Actually, to be honest, Fish Story is, is all-region. Well, no, the, no, no, the, no the the DVD player, the DVD, um, oh, the DVD, yes, uh, back yeah. in the day, yeah, the Blu-ray is all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was one of the reasons I bought an all-region DVD player was to watch Fish Story again because Fish Story. That will be on this podcast someday because Fish Story is literally my favorite movie of all time. I think it's a perfect film. And it's also kind of tailor-made for me because I'm an I'm a obsessive record collector living in Japan. So, like, I mean, you don't get more up my alley than a movie about an obscure record that saves the world. But, uh, like, there's so many great movies you guys put out. I saw you guys just released that, another a Pink, Pink Films collections. Yeah, um, quite which, a uh, a little different, not for everybody, <laughs> but uh, can you want to talk about what this? What is a pink film? For well, those pink who don't films know? Uh, are uh, they're not porn. Basically, there there were when the sort of studio systems and all that were breaking up. You had all these young directors that were coming through, and the pink genre is sort of as long as a film is uh, certain rules behind it, as in it has to be shot on film, which obviously during during the sixties. You know, that's all you could shoot on. But yeah. you had to have a certain number of sex scenes within the film. But outside of that, you could do sort of wherever you want. It was uh, sort of like these studios who were obviously just trying to make money when the, when the uh, whole market industry was a bit in a bad spot. And they just wanted to make money through, through uh, sex films. But in order to do it cheaply, they just like any young director, as long as you have these sex scenes in it, like you can do what you want. And you had all these... these um, directors that were, were coming out and obviously also quite politically uh, left-wing at the time and making these sort of like strange films that had sex but then were like incredibly like political or incredibly yeah. like you, you, they're quite uh, in terms of like the the cinema of of Japan's history like they're quite an amazing uh, and an important aspect that came out of it whether or not you're interested in sex uh, yourself I'm sure most people are whether they, they want to admit it uh, but <laughs> <you know. laughs> yes well the, the... 
the pink films. I haven't I haven't seen the ones you've put out. I I ha, I do I own the Scorpion movies, the uh, female prisoner. Yeah, movies, yeah, yeah. The pink which Biden. are just like the first couple of those are just amazing. Like those movies, you know, every content warning in the world. <laughs> if, you, if you're gonna dive into that market, um. Because they can be a bit upsetting, but I, I do think they are, from a film history standpoint, they're pretty interesting. I think probably your biggest release recently will probably, like in terms of, well, I don't know, just for me, would probably be One Cut of the Dead, right? Yeah, and One Cut of the Dead was something actually, you know, apart from my job as a distributor, what I also do is I handle world uh, sales of films. So oh, okay, actually, One Cut of the Dead was a film that I handled all the film festivals. I sold it to all those uh, countries like uh, Shudder in America and, uh, you know, in France and Europe and, uh, and and then held just UK for myself for distribution. But it was something that I worked on for, for from from the very beginning. Uh, so it was a, a lot of work uh, over many years, including, you know, needing to make that buzz around a film that, that now it obviously has. But, you know, when a small $20,000 budget Japanese film gets out, it really takes a lot of work to make it um, popular. And uh, it did take uh, quite a lot of time, to be honest. And a lot of film festivals initially, before the buzz started, were like, they just turn it off after the first 30 minutes and say, like, we don't want, this is just a, uh, like, a very low-budget, cheap zombie film. Uh, Obviously, you know, you need to stick with the film to to see how amazing it actually is, but film festival people don't usually. So it did actually take a long time to get the buzz uh, working on that, but I think everyone who ended up watching it to the end, loved it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I teach English here like one-to-one in, in, with adults, and One Cut of the Dead was one of the, like, probably one of the only like independent movies that my students talked to me about. And like, it's also one of the only independent films that Japanese people saw. Uh, yeah, because it really caught on here, too, like in Japan. Like, that movie did really good business here, didn't it? Oh, like, it did especially massive. for an independent film. Uh, I mean, the budget was about twenty twenty five thousand dollars, and it made over thirty million in the box office. Yeah, uh, the less, the less you if if you like zombie movies, or even if you like comedies, the less you know about One Cut of the Dead going in, the more you'll like it. I think it's a good way to say, good way to talk about that movie. But it's not a horror movie, so even if you have, gro- and it's not a gross movie, but it, it it's just you have to see it. Like it's such a good movie, and so anybody out there listening to this who hasn't seen One Cut of the Dead, just Probably one of my favorite movies that year. Like, almost a perfect movie for me. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad. I'm going to have to get that. One of the downsides about living in Japan is that you have to import Japanese movies <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't speak Japanese. Like, I can't get the Japanese version of that because there's no subtitles, which is a bummer, you know. So I end up importing your copy <laughs> so I can watch it here. Probably cheaper than buying the Japanese DVD, to be honest, anyway. Uh, that is a good point. <laughs> Japanese DVDs can cost an arm and a leg. Yeah, I... I uh, I did buy the Japanese edition of the American God- last Godzilla movie, which was ex- insanely expensive. But it was like, <laughs> it's Godzilla, and I'm a I'm a I'm a whore for uh, kaiju, I guess. <laughs> Uh, when, when did when did you first release Stardust Brothers? So Stardust Brothers um, was a quite long process because, you know, when you talk about cult films, mm-hmm. they're never cult films until they're mainstream when you think about it. Like, 
there's until people, loads of people watch a film, then it becomes sort of cult because they're saying it is. But otherwise, like no matter how I guess cult is in uh, strange or weird or anything like that, a film is. It can't really be named as cult by a, a, a large audience until everyone has seen it, and that can be very hard to do. I mean, you know, things like Rocky Horror and Phantom of, of the Paradise. I mean, they're major studio films. Obviously, they didn't do that well upon releases, but you know, they only become cult when they're major, and and that's in order to do that, it takes obviously a lot of work, especially for like a a Japanese film that's not even popular in Japan that's thirty plus years old. I mean, yes, it's it's. It took so long to make it a cult movie, uh, and obviously, first of all, it had to be remastered. So, so we we did that, and then uh, I had to start bringing it to film festivals, which took about a year of getting it into about thirty or forty film festivals. And then get every uh, run a press campaign to get it reviewed by many different people, and so the the process of me remastering it to actually releasing it on Blu-ray and DVD in the UK was about two years, if I remember. Man, and initially, I would say it was you know. The film that it's taken 30 years to get here but by the time it actually got anywhere it was like it was like a 35 or something i had to actually say yeah because the movie came out was in 85 yeah and you know, we haven't really said what it's about it's 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 a very hard film to describe it is a it is about two it's it's about two singers who want to be famous pretty much when they get famous and then things get progressively stranger i think is the best way how would you describe this movie there's so many different ways that people have described it and they're all slightly different but but great like you have uh, always the comparison of two films uh like it's a it's a hard day's night meets with uh the apple or something like that or it's, it's better rough. it's better than the apple oh uh, yeah but well, <laughs> well but it, it's that's a sort of way you you like the madness of one film mixed with the other like uh, it is a good it, it is it is thematically similar to the apple because it has exactly. a lot of the faustian stuff in it yeah with or like um, Bill and Ted meets Rocky Horror or something, or the Phantom. <laughs> of, I mean, like, there's so many different ways that people have have compared it. They always use that that one film meets another film, and they're yeah. all quite interesting ways. But uh, you know, the story is very incredibly simple. I mean, it is, yes. as you said, just like a, two guys that form a band, and then it it, it goes goes uh, tits up, as you say. But uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a rags to riches to rags, rags to riches. Story. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, but. You know, it's it's such an um, the the story behind it is 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 really one in a, one in a million. Uh, you know, this uh, a- artist uh, musician uh, also a, a writer um, for music called uh, Haro uh, Haro Chikada. Yes, who was quite a famous uh, artist uh, um, in Japan, and he was also quite young at this time in the, in the early eighties, and he wanted to make a rock musical. Uh, it was because he was a big big fan of films like Phantom of the Paradise and. Uh, and Rocky Horror and those sorts of things. And he wanted to make a rock musical, but he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't find a director or anything for it. So he made a soundtrack as if there was a, a movie already in place. Yes. <laughs> so this soundtrack is The Legend of the Stardust Brothers. And obviously, like, the songs in the, the soundtrack are written as if there's a story, as if there's a movie. Um, but obviously, there was no movie. So he made this in 1980. And in 1984 or so, he met... Uh, Tezuka Makoto, who is the son of Tezuka Osamu, who is essentially like Walt Disney in Japan. I mean, you yeah. can't you can't really explain how big he is. I mean, Americans will know of like obviously Astro Boy or, or Blackjack, maybe or Kimba the Lion, uh, also in Europe. But um, maybe the name Tezuka Osamu might not uh, be as relevant to them or as the, the the things like Astro Boy. 
yeah, he's a huge, he's still a huge deal here. I live pretty close to Takadana. I can never say it right. Takadana. Takadana. <laughs> and as <laughs> it's a great name, um, yeah. but it has that gigantic mural of all his work, like by the subway station. And like, I was in the middle of nowhere. I forgot where a couple weeks ago. And there was just a, there was a statue of Blackjack there. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the station. Like, he's a, he, people, people like to think of Ghibli when they think of like the, the, the Japanese version of Disney or whatever, they'll, they'll think of Studio Ghibli. And that makes sense. But before that, there was him. There was, you know, Tezuka and Astro Boy, especially, kind of, I think you can't downplay its significance to world culture, you know, and it would suck being his son. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And I think yeah. that's the reason why he made. A film like Stardust Brothers. I mean, if you think of having a father like Walt Disney, like you know, if you were the son, you'd want to do the sort of complete opposite uh, <laughs> because you know it's too much pressure. So I think him as a very young kid, straight out of uh, university at the time, met with this guy uh, uh, Haro Chikada, and they realized they they both liked sort of uh, alternative culture and strange sort of cult foreign cinema, and you know, Tezuka thought, well, you know, with this guy, we should make this uh, crazy soundtrack into a movie as your, his debut film uh, at the age of uh, 22 or 23. Yeah. And the, he kind of, I read an interview, he kind of compared it to, to Tommy. In, yeah, in another, that. Another, another Tommy meets uh, something or another. I mean, Yeah, but Tommy was a, an album first and then a movie. Or like The Wall. Ah, yes, 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 yes. And also, also Tommy is also batshit crazy. <laughs> The wall is less crazy. This is just more sad, but <laughs> <laughs> more artistic, I think. Uh. Yeah, well, I, I there's, 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 you know, it's more artsy fartsy, but I would say this, you know, Stardust Brothers also very artistic, just in a very different way. <laughs> Quite different way. Yeah, I read that he was kind of inspired by he was inspired by Monty Python, just the, the style of Monty Python, like cut, 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 super fast pace. Let's do animation here for no reason. Let's, you know, <laughs> this kind of thing, and both. Suzuka and uh, Chikata both loved Phantom of Paradise. Exactly, and this film is the in the end credits is dedicated to Winslow Leach. <laughs> yes, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Winslow Leach being the Phantom, being the titular Phantom of Paradise. I covered Phantom of Paradise in a previous episode. That movie's fantastic. You should all watch that if you haven't. Uh, I would say it'll make a fantastic double feature. And you know, an, uh, quite annoyingly. Um, when I first brought Stardust Brothers to film festivals, it played at Fantasia in Canada. Mm, oh, and, that makes sense, yeah. And very coincidentally, the I think it was the 40th anniversary of Phantom of the Paradise, and they were also screening that at Fantasia and had some of the cast members over. Oh, wow. And I tried to get them to do a back-to-back -back screening, and I think it just like... The, because Tezuka was going as well, and I think the times that Tezuka was going and the times that the cast of the oh. Under the Paradise going didn't match. They couldn't do it, but that would have been an amazing uh, double bill. And also, the people that saw Phantom of the Paradise would have been able to discover Legend of the Stardust Brothers at the same time, which would have been a big uh, plus for for the film getting out there. Yeah, yeah, because th that yeah that that's a shame because those two yeah they're two sides of the same coin. I think the other only, only other movie like you compare it to the Apple, and I think you're right there too. But like again. It's a better movie than the Apple. the The Phantom of Paradise stuff is clear, and but it definitely has a Japanese bent to it. And I think Chikata's music adds a very unique style to it. H have you listened to a lot of his music outside of the movie? I don't 
think so, to be honest. I, yeah. I mean, I heard the original Stardust Brothers. I've got the original Stardust Brothers LP, the, oh, the, wow. um, the soundtrack, the, the Chikada Haru one. Um, but actually, the film's version of, uh, the sound of Chikada Haru's soundtrack is actually, I think, better than, than his, uh, because obviously there's a range of voices, including um, Ozaki Kirihiko, which is, who is obviously a very fantastic singer himself. So mm-hmm. I do sort of prefer the, the film soundtrack over the original soundtrack. But other than that, you know, Chikada Haru, I, I did uh, try to meet him uh, when I did an event at the Foreign Correspondence Club in Japan for this film. Uh, but he's a quite hard person to deal with apparently uh, uh, <laughs> i think you that know doesn't that. surprise me he, he... <laughs> yes i think everyone says the same uh so he wouldn't appear which is very annoying because i got the film to play at the foreign correspondence club which is somewhere where like obama and like heads of state speak which is a strange <laughs> place for the film to play in the, in the first yeah. place and it would have been great to have him talk along with hezeka for it uh <laughs> yeah because he um he, I know him before this movie, as I told you before. Like he did an album that had a, a collaboration with some of the guys from Yellow Magic Orchestra, which is my favorite Japanese band. And so, if anybody watches this movie and they like his music, I recommend an album from 1979. I don't know the Japanese name; the English name is called Natural Beauty. Uh, that one is very, it's very dated, but it's from 1979, and it sounds like it was made in 1985. Like <laughs> it's very, it's 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 kind of amazing in that way. It's it's very good. Uh, techno pop, synth pop type stuff, and I dig it. I think the other musicians in the movie are interesting, like the cast, because like Harold Shikata, he's very idiosyncratic, but he is a, he is a pop, he he started in pop. You know, a lot of the people in this movie are not pop musicians, especially the Stardust Brothers, Shingo and Khan. Uh, they're they're in some weird ass bands. <laughs> yeah, Khan was a was a was the first Japanese sort of rapper. Yes, I saw him live <laughs> as a rapper. I saw him, I went to, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Yukihiro Takahashi from YMO oh. at a World Happiness Festival. That's what he called it. And I went one year to see him and Toatai were there. And Teeny Panks organization played. And they're, that's probably like, okay, I gotta be kidding. So most Japanese hip-hop is not very good. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I can't understand most. My Japanese is terrible. But even my my friends here who are Japanese who like hip-hop, they don't like Japanese hip-hop because it's not very original. It's, it's just... It's, well, that it's, 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 just, it's just pastiche. That is, yeah, exactly. and, not, and not in a good Quentin Tarantino way. Like, they're, they're just <laughs> cribbing shit they like. But Tinny Pank's organization, good or bad, they are unique. And... They are not stealing from other sounds. They came out in 85. They kind of equally electronics, electronic and hip-hop. And they have a song called Tokyo Bronx, which is actually really, really fucking good. <laughs> oh, no. I got put off hip, Japanese hip-hop after Kantagagi, to be honest. 
Oh, you're not wrong. And there's a couple <laughs> other, there's a couple other good ones, but like for the most part, yeah, it's bad. You know. But yeah, he did that, and he does hip hop, and he's done a, some electronic music. But he's only really acted in Stardust Brothers, the Stardust Brothers sequel, and he had a cameo in Samurai Fiction, which I have not seen. And you neither. That's it. And then the other guy, Shingo, Shingo was in. He's in some weird ass shit. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's in a group called Eight and a Half, which I owned one of their albums before I saw this movie. They only have one album. They're on a compilation that I picked up a long time ago uh, called Tokyo New Wave 1979. And kind of very post-punk, like if you like, God, I don't even know how to describe, almost no wave, like very deliberately, aggressively atonal, very uh, almost at times music concrete. He does a lot of stuff with this guy named Koji Ueno. Koji Ueno worked with Chukawa Jun. And so that kind of tells you what what we're going for, like very bizarre music. So the, the fact that they're both playing pop idols, <laughs> I think. Do you know how they got involved with the movie at all? Like, do you know I think that friends of of they were in a scene? You know, I think if you're into that sort of stuff at that time, um, and people like Chikare Haro and and obviously Tezuka, who was quite uh, alternative, I think they were just in that group. I mean, obviously more Chikare Haro's group, and I think because they were doing, they were they were. Ba- in bands at the time, like they were just cast like that, and that's why you know sometimes you get, I get a lot of read a lot of uh, online about the film from from comments from people saying like oh those main two actors their acting is awful. Well, I mean you know they're, they're not actors. Yeah. <laughs> I do think you know Tezuka just said that he wrote those characters in based on their own personalities. So the two of them are um are like that in, in general. But actually, when I met first uh, Shingo and Kan a few years ago, like. They were sort of like the opposite. Like, like Shingo was a bit sort of uh, like quiet and a bit. Uh, I mean, in the film, he sort of is. But I know actually he's not. He's not busy. I forget that. But uh, <laughs> he's, he's definitely not. But in real life, he was really quiet and sort of a bit shy and nervous. And like Ken, who was supposed to be like the sort of cool guy in in the past. I mean, this this uh, in the film was also uh, also in his past as a rapper. And he was like really cute and uh, like really silly and. Uh, like they were, they were sort of like opposite, um, to be honest. Uh, in real life, I mean, maybe it was different at the time, but <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is funny. I think. I think those type of people also. The movie is very critical of the Japanese music industry, oh, of and course. I think those two guys probably jumped at the chance to do that because the, the, the Johnny's uh, connection, oh, which uh, is, which if you whether I. It's probably the, I don't think you could ever do anything like that afterwards because Johnny himself uh, from Johnny's and Associates, the big idol uh, conglomerate or, or, yes. or mafia or yakuza, or a piece <laughs> of shit human being. I might cut that. Yeah, no, you could. I would say that if I, he's dead now. So I, yeah, fuck that piece of shit human being. He's, he's a piece of he's a. So like we're getting ahead of ourselves. This movie is based a little bit like so. There's a character in the movie who we'll talk about in a minute who is based on Johnny Kitagawa and. God, how do you explain Johnny's? 
to to non people who don't live here. You can't explain Johnny's to to <laughs> I mean because of the fact that that those things just haven't been allowed since like, I don't know the nineteen twenties or thirties, like in in America, where you had these. Actually, I don't think you can even go that far. I mean, it, it's 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 a management company, but in Japan, you know, in America, you have actors who are managed by companies, but usually, like the the management side of things is basically just schedule and all that, and and the actor takes the majority of the money mm-hmm. and uh, usually can decide on what they want to do themselves. But in Japan, you have these agencies for film, music, and and any other things. To be honest, where the agency decides everything and takes the vast majority of the money of the that's that's made from the talent. So the talent, I mean. In some examples of companies like Yoshimoto, uh, which is a big comedy agency, the the Yoshimoto takes ninety percent of of any fee that is done from the actor or from the comedian, whether he's and, on television. I mean, it's insane. Yeah, and uh, really topical. We're recording this in the middle of July. This is going to go up in a couple of weeks. There was just a story. If you like video games, uh, <laughs> have you heard about uh, Kimura Takuya? Kimurataka, yeah, and I've got a, an, another story that is very important and connected to this, but but uh, yes, of course I know him, so. Yeah, but well, he's in a video game uh, by Sega, and Johnny's is like, no, you can't make that anymore because they're on PC. <laughs> and that's it. Like, they can't negotiate, Sega can't negotiate. The uh, That poor guy has no leeway, has no say. Like, Johnny's controls his entire career, top to bottom. And it is. It's a little bit like the studio system in the in the in the nineteen forties in America, but worse. And like Johnny's is just the biggest thing in Japan, like because of SMAP. I would have like this is this is before SMAP. This movie is so they were still big, but I think SMAP, the boy band, made them the biggest. You know, SMAP was the biggest thing in the world here. And I, I do have a story connected to this film that also has to do with SMAP. Uh, and oh, go for it, yeah. Let me first also talk oh, one thing right. about Johnny's and the difference between obviously Johnny's and the studio system in America is Johnny's not only control the artist, they control the image rights, everything to do with him. And the fact to the point where you're not allowed to use any photos of their artists uh, in any on the internet, mm-hmm. in, in, including, for example. If their artist is on the front of a magazine, and this happened actually once when I saw when I released, I produced a film called Low Life Love a few years ago, and our film was mentioned in this magazine that had uh, the cover was one of these Johnny's artists. So I said, "Oh, I want people to to read the magazine." So I took a photo of the magazine and put it on the Twitter of of our film and said, "Look, in this magazine is our film review." And then about 10 minutes after I put in online, I got like 100 phone calls and saying, you've got to take that offline. Like, you're not allowed to have a, a show any photo that has Johnny's on the internet. And I said, but I'm, I'm showing a magazine that I want asking people, you should look for this magazine because I can't just describe it, a magazine that has loads of issues. I was just saying, look on the shelves to this magazine. There's an article. No, 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 you're not allowed to use their photo. And I said, well, why, why, you know, why can't I put... A photo of Johnny's uh, putting a photo of this magazine on the internet. No, it's 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 not illegal, but it's like uh, you're going to be killed by this sort of thing. I mean, the media f- does whatever Johnny says because if you don't, then you get blacklisted by Johnny's. Exactly, but I don't and care. Then, if I'm blacklisted, but even well, you still, don't care, like, yeah. but like the TV does. Like exactly, you know, exactly. network TV is not going to say anything bad about them because then you don't get his talent on your shows. And yes. like I don't want to get into that dude as a whole, but I have no problem saying that Johnny Kitagawa was a despicable, horrible, disgusting human being. 
and we'll <laughs> leave it at that. You can Google it. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to Google. <laughs> they 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 allude to it in the film. Very like kind of <laughs> in a kind of an attacky, kind of homophobic way. <laughs> You know, because I don't think they knew the full extent of how bad he was back then. Well, at least it wasn't, you know, as well as it's known now. But like Johnny Kitagawa was gay. And the the version of him in the movie, Atomic Manami. What is it? That's the character's name, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Ato- he He is very much no girls allowed. And you're like, oh, yeah, he's Johnny. Okay, that makes sense. That 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 character is played by uh, Kiyohiko Ozaki, Ozaki, who my boyfriend recognized instantaneously. <laughs> oh, he's, he's the sight burns to kill for, and he's also oh, the, man. Great, the great thing about him is that I always thought he was a uh, half, uh, not fully Japanese, and uh, maybe because of the sideburns, but also he's got a bit of a Western look because he's from o- Okinawa, if I remember. His grandfather's and, British. Ah, there you go, and that's also the thing with the. Um, He's the great thing about his character, um, and the way that obviously Johnny Kitagawa is. Uh, he, I don't think he's a half, but he was born in. He's born in America, maybe to, to both uh, Japanese parents, but he was either born or raised in, in America. So mm-hmm. he, um, that that sort of casting of of Ozaki was this this sort of like half uh, and also very you know impactful character playing uh, this Johnny's character, including even to the point where. When the two enter the office to um to sign the contract, and uh, he 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 the, the the Shingo character says like, oh, I've I've got this song that I also made, and I've written the lyrics here. And if you don't understand Japanese, I've also written them in, in hiragana. Yes. So like just those little points, uh, you know, in the script that um the whole it's it's so intelligent that film actually uh, in in the way it satirizes. I mean, it, I've seen the film over a hundred times, and literally every time I catch something new. So. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to catch a lot of that stuff because I don't I don't speak Japanese nearly well enough. So I think a, some of, some of the subtext, like the more you know about Japanese culture, the more you'll like this movie. I think. Yes, I but, think I think for sure. Yeah, but even if you don't know much, it's just the style of it alone will get you. I do want to say really quick about uh, Ozaki. He's also in House. He is. He is, and also yes. Kurosawa Osamu is in um, uh, Obayashi's film. Uh, I think it's the Aim School. Um, a few films in the in the early eighties, so just okay. after half. So and actually, Obaya, that's a separate story. But um, okay. yes, uh, <laughs> Tezuka and Obayashi were, were quite quite close. So um, even actually, uh, Obayashi's most recent film, uh, that his last film, actually, The Labyrinth of Cinema, uh, Tezuka Makoto is starring it in as well. So there's quite a lot of connections okay. there. Yeah, I, I just I wanted to bring it up because I think that kind of, if you've seen House, which is an amazing movie. <laughs> That could kind of, and the kind of person who would want, you know, Ozaki, Kiyohoku Ozaki was a very big star in the 70s. And House and Stardust Brothers are some batshit weird ass movies. <laughs> so I think that tells you one, it tells you a lot about, uh, about Kiyohoku Ozaki as a person. <laughs> and if, you, if you've seen House, I think that kind of keys you into the kind of tone of Stardust Brothers. You know, it's, it's an off, it's off kilter, I think. It's, a, it's, it's not. You can say it's a dark comedy or a, a comedy about showbiz, but that doesn't just like you can say house is about a haunted house. That does not tell you what house is about. <laughs> yes, and also both films feature sort of weird sort of animations and very weird um, directing styles that you don't usually see in Japanese cinema. So yeah, they yeah, are both, similar in a both, way. Both have good soundtracks, you know. Uh, <laughs> exactly. House has what Godaigo. That's a that one of the better albums. Uh, but 
anyway, yeah, I, I just think that's worth mentioning. And I think the, the only other, there's a lot of I, I want you probably know the cameos more of this than I do. And but there is one of the person that I think is interesting, like the main cast, the the main bad guy, or the, like uh, Niji. He's played by a singer named Issei. Is that how you say that? Yes, Issei is. Uh, but he, uh, is he that? Maybe you you'd probably know more about him than me, to be honest, uh, because of the the eighties music connection. Um. Well, he's not. He was in a band called um, Durazaibet, and yeah, that's a, that, yeah. a Visual K band. And I'm not big in Visual K aside from Extra Pan. I love Extra. I saw Extra Pan live once. It was amazing. I think he's interesting mostly because one, he's he's just so pretty, and <laughs> you know, in this movie, it's hilarious. And he's the only person whose stage persona matches the movie. Like, everybody else, like, you know, like, Khan and Shingo are, like, they're, in real life, they're crazy, experimental, avant-garde, hip-hop, whatever. Like, if you see Issei live, he's the same person. I think for the actors in the film, uh, no, 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 the musicians in the film, uh, you know, Tezuka, because they weren't, including Ozaki Hiko, to be honest, like, they they weren't actors, so Tezuka had to sort of write the character based around them and what lines they could say easily and, and this that. So yeah, I think it is uh it's 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 a good casting and good that he didn't uh, try to mess too much with something that they might not be able to do. That's a good point. Yeah. I think he is a good villain. He's creepy. Uh <laughs> um not the best actor. <laughs> yes, yeah, so and well yes, I mean it, it just it fits the, the role and, and that's uh that's a, a intelligent point of uh, of Tezuka to make it work. Yeah, I think like if you watch this, I think the acting fits the movie almost because the movie is kind of hyper real and bizarre. And if they played it, if they played it like serious, it wouldn't work. But because the acting style comes off almost as tongue in cheek throughout the entire film, it it kind of matches the movie. In my opinion, do you, do you think so? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 super cute. I mean, it's really yeah. it's, it fits it fits the rhythm of the film. Uh, you know, I, I didn't I couldn't think anybody else uh, any actor could play those roles the way that they do because it adds that sort of like amateur punky do it yourself attitude that the film really succeeds on. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that's probably the only way you could you said it could succeed because from every other like you know financial standpoint, it didn't. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. so- <laughs> Did this movie actually come out in theaters in the 80s? It did, it did. Um, actually, you know, um, the film was actually um, financed by Seiyu, the department store, which no is shit. very strange because <laughs> yeah. I don't know what Walmart or something like that, uh, you could say for an American, like a very big nationwide yeah. uh, department store. And they wanted to get into cinema. And <laughs> and I guess, you know, having that name of Tezuka really gets you anywhere. I mean, I think they just probably would have given a blank check just because of the name. Yeah. And Chikata. That, that, that didn't hurt either. Yes. Uh, yeah. But I think Chikata is a little more alternative than than Tezuka or Samuel. Good point. Good point. Yeah. So they and uh, also, was it Parco, I think, the, uh, who distributed it, also, if I remember correctly. Uh, so it was quite a, it was quite big. It just didn't hit. Uh, it was released in, in a decent number of screens, but it, for one, uh, it just didn't hit a pack. Tezuka was saying that it was just sort of a bit before, it's either before its time or just after its time or a bit of both, to be honest. Uh, like when it was actually released, it was just like, it just didn't work. And um, it didn't work so bad that actually everyone involved with the film, especially Tezuka, got so uh, traumatized by it. Uh, 
that Tezuka himself didn't make another film for like uh, 15 years or something. I mean, he was, yeah. He, even until I I came to him and was so excited and all that and, and other recent things, did he really start to like the film? Huh. I mean, he was so, so traumatized. That makes sense. Yeah, maybe it was just it was so like it is pretty. It's a pretty. It's a very cynical movie, and. I would imagine, like, maybe some people just didn't want to see that negative view of Japan, perhaps. But it, it's, 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 well, yeah, I, it could be, but, you know, this is a film made for Japanese, and I think... I know, that's time, what I mean, that's what I mean. Yeah. People in Japan might not want to see that, you know. I don't knows? know, to be honest. I can't imagine, you know, why, but then again, you know, loads of other films like, you know, Phantom of the Paradise and yeah. things that, that should have been famous. I mean, I think this is the most sure hit of a should be famous film and that's why i think it's such a brilliant cult film because as as you had just sort of mentioned about cameos i mean uh there oh, are so, so many. many massive japanese names in this film that not just japanese not just um from one uh genre like uh, just for music or something, but from big names of of movies you know big names of um uh manga like uh, the guy who wrote lupin the third is in yeah, monkey punches and monkey punch yeah and uh Genki Yoshimura, who did like Sailor Moon and, and all that. Uh, like, there's so many big manga names, and you have so many like tele- television personalities, like uh, Tamori, who's. Yeah, uh, Tamori is in this movie. Yeah. Tamori, we, we're, we're, we're talking like these are common names, but like people out. Tamori is a huge talk show host here. Like, that would be like having Johnny Carson in. That would be like having Johnny Carson in Clerks. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's, that's <laughs> <Yeah. a> good... <laughs> I mean, you can't turn on the television in Japan like and not see Tamori on it like at any day of any minute of the day, to be honest. Yeah, if you're not if if and he's in he's in commercials, like if 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 you're not seeing Time Lee Jones, you're seeing Tamori. Like <laughs> that's exactly the boss, boss <laughs> exactly <man>. it. <laughs> well, the one cast member we forgot to mention was uh Kyoko Togawa, who plays Marimo. And it's one of her first films as an adult because she was a child actress and uh, she's she plays like the biggest fan kind of. She's just so ginky in this movie. Yeah, it's another you know? perfect casting. I mean, even her sister, who who as you know is a, a even bigger idol, uh, she has a scene in the film. So uh, yeah, I think also the fact that Kyoko uh, Togawa Kyoko she committed suicide um, yeah. is also another reason why I think a lot of people that were involved with the film have traumatic uh, feeling towards it because I think every time they watch it, they they get very tearful about. Uh, yeah, about that was. That was yeah, but she was pretty. She was a pretty big deal in the second half of the eighties. Yes, um, and she was on a lot of like she was never a huge like she wasn't like Seiko or like Yumi, other big idols here. But she was on a lot of commercials, a lot of TV shows. My my boyfriend knew who she was. <laughs> that's he's, that's my my boyfriend is is, is I'm just, I'm forty one. He's older than me. I'll leave it at that. He doesn't like it when I say that. Um. So like if. I'm watching something from the '80s, and he was not, you know, he was not a, an indie alternative person. So if if he knew who they were, then they were pretty mainstream. And so, like watching this, when he notices a cameo and notices her, I'm like, oh, that means they're probably a big deal. But yeah, she was and a yet, big deal. And yet bombed, uh, and that's that's why I think it's. I mean, there are lots of cult films that are cult because they're crazy or low budget in a way or another. But I think real cult films should be cult films that that shouldn't be there should be massive hits uh, and yeah the reason why they're not a hit makes them a, a cult film yeah and it, it is so hard to say like what trying what trying to guess why this wasn't a hit who knows like, no, exactly like that's one thing i've done when about this podcast it's like you look at movies that were not popular like one of my i bring it up almost every episode but Street, streets of fire is one of my all-time favorite movies have you ever seen streets of fire yes yes but it's yes 
Well, it's, it's, it's a bit mainstream. It's studio, isn't it? It's mainstream now. Um, uh, when yeah. it came out like this, when it came out, nobody saw it. Like, nobody. It was a massive bomb. And it was pretty big in Japan. But other than that, it was a huge bomb. And, like, you ask people why, and nobody knows. <laughs> it's like, it had a pretty good cast. It had it got decent enough reviews. It had a unique style. But it just got lost in the shuffle. And maybe I think a movie like this is... It is so weird that it has to. I maybe more stuff has to go for. Who knows? Who knows? This is 1985. That was a pretty big year for movies. So more than Japan, but like, but it had to compete with American movies. I would imagine. Like, it would be interesting to dig out what came out the same week. I do actually have some magazines from the time, so I probably could. Uh, and I, I oh, should wow. be honest. Wow. Hmm. I wonder. Like, I wonder if Ghostbusters was here, was here yet, or you know. As, as as you just mentioned with the reverse uh, with the city of uh, streets of fire japan has a funny thing that if it's not big in japan it's almost guaranteed a hit overseas and in the opposite way too if it's it's a bomb overseas it tends to be a hit in japan mm-hmm. uh, with music and movies mm-hmm. so maybe it just fell into that sort of strange well, it's like, anomaly it's like uh, a good example of that is um cowboy bebop is really popular in the west the anime yeah but here it's People know it, but not the same what level. And conversely speaking, <laughs> Mr. Big, the American one-hit wonder who had to be with you in America, they're gigantic. They were gigantic here in Japan, like one of the biggest bands of the 80s and 90s. And it is strange how like these small things, like it happens a lot with like the the music and the stuff I like that's Japanese. I'll tell my students or my friends here and they're like, why do you know this? <laughs> but it's like, if it doesn't catch on here, but it finds an audience internationally. Who who knows why? It is yeah, it is a strange there thing. There are a million examples there, as you said, but yeah, yeah it is, it's almost some sort of like guaranteed, like if it's a bomb in Japan, like, ah, oh, this movie, for me as well, I always, I think the majority of films that I've released have been bombs in Japan and, and they tend to, I mean, example like Shion Sono, the director, I mean, he's, he had never made a film that, that that broke even in Japan up until like Shinjuku Swan, which is the film that he hated, to be honest. Uh, yeah. He was a massive hit overseas. And uh, Kurosawa Kyoshi, his films never make money in Japan. And yet he goes to all the big film festivals and a huge name overseas. It's just a, it's almost like a, it's almost like guaranteed, to be honest. Uh, well, like near the end of his career, Akira Kurosawa needed to get foreign funding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, to it's, make it's, movies. Like, exactly, exactly. It, it is, it, who knows? It is strange. I do like this movie quite a bit. I do think it is a. It it is in it in one thing it has in common with like the wall or Tommy is that it doesn't really end as much as it just kind of stops. <laughs> That's a good thing. It keeps the energy up. Keeps the energy up. It's <laughs> over. Um, and I, I, I it's kind of adorable in parts, like the parts of illegal drugs. It's like it's a very. <laughs> Very Japanese, mainstream Japanese understanding of how drugs work. Exactly. I love that. I love that it's, always in Japanese films. It's, a bit, it's the cutest thing you ever say. It's like, oh, they think it's like an after-school special. Yeah. It's, uh, I saw a, a subway poster yesterday of a guy running away from a guy holding a joint. 
like <laughs> like like the guy had a gun in his hand like it was it was amazing and and those kind of things i guess are kind of quaint uh the the, the i don't want to spoil the ending but the the shock value ending <laughs> with who shows up in the last scene the yeah, so that always every every time we brought that to a film festival the audience's reaction was was really a mind blow yeah, I guess they wanted. I'm not going to spoil. It's not a famous person. It's a famous. It's not a famous actor. It's a famous person, like playing an actor playing a famous person, infamous person. I won't say who, but they wanted to get Toshiro Bufune. Yes, uh, that's <laughs> wear a mask, and, and he was. He asked for. He said, "I'll do it if you pay me." Like I think it was uh, ten thousand uh, dollars. Was what I, I remember it being. Uh, <laughs> and then Tezuka t- turned it down. <laughs> and then they were thinking about getting Akira Kurosawa. Yes, uh, yeah, yes, I believe. Uh, yeah, you, you, yeah. You, That's you another tried, thing. But a schedule wouldn't work. Uh, schedule wouldn't work. So yes. then they went the way they went, and it's a it's a direction. Um, <laughs> another thing I noticed that looks, going back to like kind of a naive, naivety is there's a really strange sequence. I think during the song, like there's a montage song of them being popular, like sing the same song again type stuff. I forgot what song it is. And there's a Time magazine, like flashes on the screen, and the headline has them on the cover, and then the the, the headline is blackmailing in the USA. Yeah, yeah. It's... I don't. What does that even mean? <laughs> exactly, and I don't. I don't think they, as as you know, living in in Japan, I don't think they know what it means either, or, or even they probably <laughs> just saw a bunch of words and thought that must that must make sense. Uh, in, but um, because they knew one of the words or something. Yeah. Well, at least it wasn't blackface. So um, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't uh, the, the Chanel's, was it? Oh, rats and was it rats and stars? It's the yeah, same band. They'll say, "Oh, I'm sorry." I get <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, that 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 copy of Time magazine, if you freeze frame it, has a yen price on it. Like the price <laughs> is in yen, so it's like there are a lot of very specific points that really didn't need to require so much work on them. That that really they put a lot into, and it's. Uh, I think that's why I think the more times you watch it, the more you you get. Like I mean, there are some so small. Small, small bits uh, that that the more times you watch, yeah, it just cost time out. And I think that's that's really, really. I think they could only do that film also because they were so young and energetic and, and wanted to do just everything by hand and do it, put everything in into the film. And uh, that's why if you watch the new Legend of the Stardust Brothers, the one that they made uh, in two thousand sixteen, it's really a terrible film to me, honestly, uh-huh. because they're they're all in their sixties. You know, I mean, you can't yeah. make a film like that when you're in the sixties. It uh, just doesn't work. I was going to ask to, to, about you finding the movie. One, like, where did you find this movie? <laughs> so I saw it on, there was a, a, a sort of, I don't know, maybe it was the 30th anniversary or something, but they had a, a, a 35 millimeters screening of it at, in okay. Shinjuku, a place called uh, Teatro Shinjuku, which is just behind Isetan. It's a fantastic cinema. It's one of the best in Japan. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they screened it there. And the audience, there's only about 20 people in the audience, to be honest. There was such a, disappointment uh and i saw it there and i, I immediately tezuko was doing a uh, talk show afterwards as, as in japan whenever they have a a late night uh, screening of, of any film they have a talk show immediately after it and i went to him and i said like like why don't doesn't anybody know of this film and he's like well it's never been released outside of japan so i said just like let me do it and uh, he said like okay so <laughs> we, we remastered it and uh, i started bringing it overseas okay and was he surprised that you were interested in it I think he was probably surprised that like a like a Western guy was in the audience at all. But actually, <laughs> I knew him before a little bit because before this film, Stardust Brothers, I saw it then. He had approached me 
in uh, Korea. We were coincidentally at a film festival together, and he had was been trying to find producers to help him adapt a uh, manga of his father, a manga called Barbara, which was oh yeah, yeah. The, the later years of his father when he was getting into more like sort of really adult and, and twisted manga. And he'd always wanted to adapt that. And uh, at this festival in Korea, he gave me a planning sheet and he said like, you know, how about this? And, and I read it and it was quite good, but I, I was in the middle of producing other films. So I said, sorry. And then once I met him and we, we spoke about Stardust Brothers, like I said, oh, are you still doing that, that Barbara? Because I haven't heard anything about it. And he said, the producer that I had on died. And, uh, and you know, I'm, we, we, I still want to do it again. So I came onto that project as well as a producer. And, and that, going back to the story about Johnny's, is actually the lead actor is an ex-member of SMAP. Oh, okay. What, 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 was it the guy who was it one of the main guys or the guy yes. who quit way earlier? Uh, the, the one of the, the Goro Inagaki is okay. Oh, wow. Wow. So okay. the big, and those guys have actually left SMAP to form a, a new project called Atarashi Chizu, like a new, new map, on, or I guess it's the literal translation. Yeah. But because of them leaving Johnny's, like this production of Barbara took years and no, when we tried to get it released, no cinema would take it because of Johnny's was, was blackmailing those three guys. Ugh. And no television was allowed to mention their name. And, you know, it was just, it just killed the films and it killed the film's release. And, and if you think about it, these three guys from their ages of about 15 years old, I mean, going back to the Johnny situation uh, and showing how, how ruthless they are, they work for this company from 15 to like 40 years old. Yeah. This band SMAP, who sold... The, I think it's like the 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 f- uh, third or second most s- records in like the history of Japanese music. Yeah, it's an insane number. Whatever yeah, like it is, million or something like that. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, yeah. You really can't overstate how big Smap was. Yeah, like, and and to the point that even they they the Johnny's made all this money from it, and they thought like, oh, uh, you know, we've done this for so long. You know, thank we've done, we've done, given all our lives to you. We just want to leave. And Johnny was like, "That's it. We're blackmailing you, you three from the industry." Yeah, blackballing. Yeah, they, they, they black. I think I think the word is blacklisted. Maybe uh, blacklisted. Black, yes, yes. I got, okay. I'm stuck on the blackmail from what we were talking about earlier. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is. It's a shame. Yeah, I I I, I had never heard of Barbara until I was looking at your website. Yeah, like, it's a troubled, uh, very stressful project to be honest uh i don't like talking about it myself because oh, it, i'm sorry it nearly killed me because dealing with johnny's and then also dealing with their new manager as well it was really uh hell but uh but yeah so that was just how how barbara started because of the stardust brothers uh and because yeah i mean tezuko was knew me and he was like yeah you know go ahead and uh, i'm yeah prepared all the subtitles and made the dcps and brought it to film festivals and then sold the rights to some countries and released it myself in england and even made a vinyl for it because the original soundtrack vinyl made for the Stardust Brothers was done as a promo for like shops or something like that. And they only made like 100 or 120. And I'd wanted one. And I'd been trying to buy one on, on Yahoo Auction, the Japanese eBay, for ages. And I couldn't find it for years. So I thought, I better just make it myself. <laughs> so, so I made a vinyl and I remastered the whole thing actually uh, in Germany. So it's a really good quality uh, vinyl. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Is there a way to get the soundtrack digitally or on CD? On CDS, uh, when I first put out um, the, the Stardust Brothers on DVD and Blu-ray, I put the CD into oh, it. So, so um, but it's out of print, but I might have some copies I could, I could, I could send. But otherwise, yes, it is available digitally in Japan on Amazon. Okay. That's and it's good. actually re-released um, on double CD uh, about 
four years ago in Japan, which featured the soundtrack of the, the original Stardust Brothers and the new Stardust Brothers together. Okay. So it's not so hard to find, to be honest, in Japan. I That's, mean, it, it's digital as well. So Yeah, because I, I do, I am an insane record collector. I have like over a thousand records, but I do like, you know, the convenience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, also. I mean, uh, I'd love to listen to it uh, when I was out running, but uh, I don't really want to have to convert my vinyl to, uh, <laughs> and then put it on the MP3 and all that iTunes nonsense. So I, I, I do that every day and you're right. Don't be me. It's, it's, uh. <laughs> I'm an it's idiot. A pain, is it really pain? It's it's it can be it's it's almost it can be fun in almost a zen way of like <laughs> you know like and it's can if you get it if you if you get a good workflow like I'm pretty good at like scrubbing the scratches and I can get it sounding really really good and from that you know it's nice but I have a full time job now so like <laughs> it's like oh fuck I got all these records and someone has to record this Depeche Mode single like it's gonna be me if you uh, got time to make four K upscale scales of Erg then I'm sorry. <laughs> Hey, that's that. just that's been a pain in the ass. But all I gotta do is press press a button on my computer and walk away. Um, so and then come back eight hours later. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. I guess yes. anyway. Yes, but uh, I don't know what else to say about this movie other than the fact that like people should see it and thank you for making it possible. Um, well, it's pretty easy movie... to, to see actually at the moment because I put it on movie worldwide. So. Movie, even if you're not a, a um, subs- have a subscription, you can sign up for like a seven day free trial, and then wherever you are, you can watch it. But actually, I did sell the rights of the film to a company in America. Um, it is on movie in America anyway, but it will be released on DVD, um, on Blu-ray in America pretty soon. And they made a fantastic poster, like a sort of '80s style, you know, the sort of like illustration, but it's also sort of a like type of photo illustration of it so um yes if you are in america it's it's pretty easy to see cool cool and that's movie that's m-u-b-i yes not to be confused with to be in america which is t-u-b-i and also a video site but um yes movie yes, is a it's a fantastic uh um service for art house and independent films and it's a worldwide service and it's uh if you're into art house cinema and you don't mind having another subscription if, if, <laughs> you, if you already have many then oh, uh, God, i'd I recommend so it <laughs> I, I have a I I've said this before on a podcast, but I have a VPN here. Ah, uh, so it's can, imperative uh, to have one. Yeah, because I have so I have Amazon America and I have Netflix America and uh, HBO Max and Disney Plus, <laughs> which is I, I only have Disney Plus for the Muppets. They, they, that's the only reason, and then also I have Shutter. I, I have Shutter, but I don't have time anymore with a baby. So. Yeah, I, I, I use Shutter. Shutter's only horror movies, and I use it like once a month, but I, I, I like what they're doing so much. I don't want to cancel it. Like, it's cheap. It's cheap. It's very cheap, for the, and they have a great selection. They have films all the time. It's, and it's I want to support that. It's the kind of thing I feel okay throwing money at, even though I barely use it. Not like Netflix. So I got to fucking cancel that. <laughs> yeah, I canceled mine recently. But, they, but Shutter paid me a ton for One Cut of the Dead. So Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That's how, yeah, that's how, I, that's how I sort of friend it. Because <laughs> exactly. I saw. One cut of the dead on a plane. <laughs> like, yeah, it went on, it went on planes, didn't it? it was, uh, yeah, that's... I saw it on, on Delta when I came when when my last not this not this previous trip, but the the last trip before COVID when I went to America, I saw it on a plane, and then when I came back, it was on Shutter. And so it's funny. I have to stream. I have to use a v, American VPN to get an American service to watch the Japanese movie <laughs> because in Japan you can't get anything with English subtitles. So. Yeah, it's 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 annoying, but well. Oh yeah. Well, like, about, just... if you if you don't mind, if you're talking about one cut, I do want to also mention that 
I just had started in the same way as one cut handling world sales and festivals for another film called beyond the infinite two minutes beyond the infinite two minutes. And it's a very, very similar film to one cut of the dead in, uh, it's long take. Uh, it's it's um, it's very very cheap. It had a similar success in Japan. It opened up in a thirty seat seat cinema, and it went on to playing like nationwide Toho cinemas, which is the biggest cinema yeah. chain in Japan. And it's playing like loads of international film festivals right now. It'll be playing um, at a few big ones. It's already sold the rights to countries like uh, America and uh, Spain and a few others. And uh, it's going to be like the one cut of the dead of this year. So. Um, Cool, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's 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 in Japan, yes, no subtitles on Blu-ray yeah. screen, but uh yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it is it's like it's like that it's like that episode of the Twilight Zone where he has with with what he with where he has this nuclear war and he can read all the books he wants to read, then he breaks his glasses. It's like you live in Japan, you love Japanese culture, but unless you're fluent in Japan, Japanese, you just you're fucked. <laughs> To be honest, I think that's really helped me as a distributor because I was initially distributing Korean films and Korean films are all available in Korea on with English subtitles on, on, mm. on physical formats. So I think a lot of people like myself, when they wanted to watch a Korean film, they would just buy it from Korea through companies like sites like Yes Asia. But with Japanese films, like you just couldn't see them with English subtitles. And, you know, they're also incredibly expensive. The Blu-rays are like $56. Um, yeah. God, like bare yeah. bones edition if it's a special edition it's like a, it's like a hundred dollars you know uh yeah yeah so uh, you know i think that helped me succeed <laughs> in distributing japanese films but uh it also meant that like anytime i released a film overseas like it would just immediately be pirated because it, the subtitles would be there so i yeah. think it also pissed off a lot of japanese companies uh, and that's one yeah. really one reason why they don't want to uh work so much with with western western uh distributors and it's kind of a catch-22 i mean what like I would imagine, like, if you don't distribute it and a version exists that can be put online, someone's going to put it online anyway. Nowadays, yes. I mean, people make fan subs and all that. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does take a little longer to get pirated in that respect. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and, you, and you're not tied to it. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's annoying. You know, I release a film and literally the next day it's available, like, everywhere. Like, when I do a Google search of it to check the reviews, like, oh, the yeah. day after I've released it, like, just every single pirate site has, like, those are the first, like... 50, 50s hits on, on Google, and it's, yeah, it's a bit depressing. You know, and people who follow me on Twitter know that I don't mind sharing stuff that maybe not, maybe is not, you know, distributed by the copyright holder. But that's because you can't get it. <laughs> like, yeah. Erg is an if example. you can find something legally, watch it legally. You know, it's, it's not like it's expensive nowadays. You know, I exactly. mean, exactly. Yeah, don't can be sign a up to a yeah. service, or you can. I mean, most DVDs, Blu-rays are like five, ten, ten dollars. Uh, you know, it's it's it's, it's a bit, uh, but it's just easy, I guess, uh, to yeah, press yeah. a button and, and watch something for free. Yeah. Are there any movies you got in the pipeline, or any like project you have coming soon you want to talk about? I can't yet. Okay, well, there was one then actually. There's one director that I've loved from Japan called Toyoda Toshiaki, and I think okay. you might like him because a lot of his films have are, are connected to music. Uh, okay. Especially uh, Fujiwara Tatsuya, um, the rock drummer from. I forget the name of the big, big band that he's in. Uh, but a lot of his films are always set to really good music, uh, every one of his films. And oh. he's, he's a really, really talented uh, director that as we go back to the drugs angle of like uh, being yeah. chased by a joint, a joint of marijuana, when he, he made a few films in the, in the uh, early 2000s, including one called Blue Spring, which uh, I think is, is quite well known. Uh, and Nine Souls is another and he made a film in 2005 called The Hanging Garden, which is a fantastic film. And, and during 
the um, uh, post-production of the film, he got raided by the police and they found him with like 100 grams of marijuana. Uh, and and they he was uh, he was um, blacklisted from he was put put in uh, on in jail and then in, in probation for years and blacklisted um, for years uh, in in cinema and uh, it really destroyed him and recently the police came to his house again like uh, this is you know ten fifteen years after that to uh, you know find drugs as uh, which they they found none and on top of his his um his uh, fridge they found like a, an old world war ii like obviously antique like broken gun uh-huh and and obviously apart from from drugs you know guns are, are incredibly yeah. illegal in japan but it's oh, it was a his grandfather's the antique gun from the second world war and it didn't work and they before they arrested him they called as they do in japan uh, to make a um to make a show is they called the media yeah. and they brought them all to his house and then they release the news to the media to write up as they do in Japan. The media just write the police reports up and, and put them in the paper. And uh, yeah, they, they they brought him out of the house, captured him on media, and and uh, you know they didn't really have the authority to arrest him. But you know in Japan they have this this uh, as you might as Westerners might know from the the Gon, Gozen uh, situation is they can put you in these holding cells. Yeah, for, it's only supposed to be a maximum of twenty days, but it can actually. Go on for much longer, um, as Gozen was was uh, three months or something like that, or even longer. But um, yeah, they put him there for like for and and for 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 twenty days, and uh, it can be quite tough in those cells because unlike a, a jail, you you are just in a room with uh, that's like underground with no uh, you get no no sunlight, you get no fresh air, and you're in the cell for the whole time, and there's nothing to do in the cell either. You just sit there for for until until you sleep, and they they make you sleep with the lights on as well. So. Uh, yeah, it really, uh, it really hurt him again, and and because of that, or not because of that, but because I, I I love him so much, and because he's had all these difficulties. I a few years ago I put out a um a box set of his first three films, and now I've got another one of his films uh, since his arrest, um, his initial arrest, and uh, it's uh, a box set of six films that will be out. Um, I don't know, maybe September or October, but it's okay. uh, it's, it's he's a really fantastic director, so I, I do hope. And more what's people. his name again? Uh, to- Toshiaki Toyoda. Okay, makes those so people can look it up. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. I'll, I'll have to check that out too. I, I sounds sounds. Hopefully, he can you know get over that bullshit. Um, man, that sucks. That yeah. that gun. You know, I I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of Japan's gun laws as a whole. Of um, course. You know, I like, but that's obviously they want to make an example out of him, so they 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 did that. But no, let's let's not talk about sad stuff. <laughs> yeah, we, and let's not talk about Japanese laws. So it could be Japanese fun. laws, yeah, <laughs> I don't even get me. Hey, man, I can't even get married here, so hey. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. yes. Uh, so, another. anyway, on a happier note, you know, the people should check out this movie if they can. You know, you know go over to thirdwindowfilms.com, check out other stuff. You know, I, I recommend as I said, Fish Story, because it's the greatest movie ever made. Um, you also have uh, some good old stuff like Iron Man uh, and uh, what is it, Hanabi, if you just want to be sad, <laughs> you know, watch, watch Hanabi. Uh, what, any, you got any other catalog ones you want to recommend really quick? Anti-porno or? Well, to be honest, I, I released quite a lot of films. I can only sort of remember the last few that I, I, I release. And mm-hmm. actually, okay. I guess I bring up the website right now. I'm sort of, <laughs> sort of stuck, stuck, stuck here, but um. Yes, sir, please. Uh, there's such a. I really try to make an effort to make a variety of films. Yeah, I noticed uh, so, that. 
there are these classics like uh, Shinya Tsukamoto and Takashi Kitano, like the names that everybody knows in, in, in great new editions, as with all with, with loads of bonus features, as well as like super, super independent, like really low budget films and comedies and dramas. And, you know, if anything, was sort of like off the beaten track, to be honest. So, you know, and if anybody has any questions, like I run everything. So you can on, on the social media, on Facebook, Twitter and all that, like I'm, if you send a message, I'll immediately respond if I'm if I'm awake, uh, and <laughs> send, send, I send an email and I'll immediately respond. So anybody is free to chat at, at any time, and uh, and I'll get, I'll talk uh, for as long as they're interested. Yeah, I can attest. You're very you're very easy to get a hold of on Twitter. So anyway, um, thanks again. I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, since we talked about your Twitter, where can people? I know people can find you on thirdwindowfilms.com, and uh, where else can they get a hold of you? Yes, uh, Twitter is uh, forward slash third window. Facebook is forward slash or backslash, I don't know which one, uh, Third Window Films. And uh, Instagram, I think, is also Third Window Films. So I'm sure if you uh, search Third Window Films, you'll be able to get a hold of me quite easily. And, yeah, yes, easy to find. And as always, you can find me on LostTurntable.com, on Twitter at LostTurntable, and on my other podcast, Alexander's Ragtime Band, which is about progressive rock music, if you, if you like that. Um, anyway, <laughs> Adam, thanks again for joining me. And everybody, stay tuned again next week for an episode of Cinema Oblivion. <laughs>